Good morning, everyone. There is not a place I would rather be on this side of eternity than right here with you this morning. It sure is good to be together, isn't it? Um, You know, I've started each sermon kind of highlighting ministry. I want to do something a little bit different this morning. I actually want to talk about membership. We've had a lot of people place membership lately. Um, three families this morning, and that's, that's amazing. It's a wonderful thing. But I also know that there's a lot of people who have been visiting and probably wondering, what does that mean and what's the process behind it? And while I certainly don't have time here at the introduction of a lesson to, um, to fully expand on everything that it means, I, I want to I kind of start by saying this. First of all, when you are baptized and you believe and are baptized, the Lord adds you to his church. That's not a decision we make. Um, We see that pattern throughout scripture and and we uphold that. But there is a lot of benefit with placing membership in a local congregation. Um, That gives gives us the ability to know who is affiliated with us so that we can put you to work and serve so that we can have your contact information in our directory. And I think one of the greatest benefits is it gives our shepherds the ability to know who their flock is. and so if, if that's something that you've been wondering about, if you've been visiting um, for a long time and you haven't taken that extra step, I would encourage you to consider it. And the process is, is pretty simple. We, you can reach out to the church office and let us know of your desire. A couple of our elders will sit down and have an informal meeting with you to kind of get to know you and give you a chance to ask questions. At that meeting, you um, provide us some information so that we can put your information in the directory. And then the next time we're worshiping together, we make an announcement. And then the fun part comes because we're going to put you to work. And, uh, and so we really want to encourage you. You know, that's part of the reason that I have been highlighting all of the ministries that we have happening here. Because we believe that it's important for people to be working. We are all pulling in the same direction with our brothers and sisters across the globe. Um, and it's important for you to find the place where you can contribute your talents to the kingdom And that's going to help us get you plugged in if you place membership. You know, as a Christian, it's really hard to watch so many of the things that are happening around us. You know, you turn on the television, and what do you see? Sexual immorality just seems to run rampant. Um, You look out in the world around us, and we're witnessing this unprecedented breakdown of the family and the home. It seems like everywhere we look, there's injustice. I mean, on the TV, on every channel, we see violence, and we see hateful rhetoric just pouring from the mouths of people. It's on the television. It's, It's all over our social media feed. We look at people in the world, and we see so many stuck in cycles of poverty. They're struggling in this society that seems to kick them when they're down. Babies are being murdered at an unprecedented rate. And even though there's been some recent legislation put in place to try to stop that and slow it down, we see in our culture it's being met with this fierce resistance, with this hateful rhetoric that just seems to be spewing everywhere. And as a society, you look and you see that we've lost the ability to blush. We sin and we're proud of it. You know, I suppose if you're a non-believer, this is kind of par for the course. Um, But for those of us who uphold a biblical worldview, for those of us who cherish the teachings of Scripture, 
For those of us who believe that it is genuinely the Word of God delivered to us by the Creator of the universe, that it was provided for our benefit, that it holds truth, that that is the way to live, when we, when, when we who believe that way look at the world around us, it can be really easy to get discouraged. Because despite our strong beliefs and truth, it seems like it's losing. It can feel like morality is slipping away. It can feel like the church is slipping. And I've got to be honest, there's times when God is really hard to see. It's for this reason that I've chosen to step into the story of Esther with you all. I'm not going to have our readings on the screen this morning, so I'm going to stretch y'all a little. I'd like for you to open your Bibles, open your devices, and, and get to the book of Esther. So if you're using a paper Bible, Psalms is right there in the middle. Go back to Job and then back to Esther. It's, it's two books before Psalms. I want to encourage you in your daily Bible reading this week to read all of Esther. It's only 10 chapters long. It will take you about 30 minutes. You could break it into a few readings, but I think you're going to find when you sit down, it's a really interesting story. It's a fun one to read. Um, it doesn't quite require the same type of discipline as some of the other scriptures are that are a little more difficult for us to, to get through. Esther tells the story of this young orphan girl named Esther who was raised by her cousin Mordecai and how she rises from obscurity to prominence during the time of exile, of Jewish exile. She ultimately ends up using her influence to thwart the plans of the evil villain Haman because Haman has put in place a plot to, to commit genocide and wipe the Jewish people off the face of the planet. The book of Esther provides the basis for the Jewish Feast of Purim um, that's still celebrated to this day. And, and in it, they remember the deliverance of the people through the person and story of Esther. It's quite an interesting story. In fact, it's one of, one of the ones in Scripture that could be made into a Hollywood thriller without a whole lot of adaptation. And, and to be honest, you probably wouldn't be appropriate for you to watch it were they to do that because it has some pretty awful stuff. So if anything's going to get you to read, that's it, right? Y'all are all going to do your daily Bible reading this week. That's the problem with Esther. I've struggled with it this week. There are booze and drunkenness, and much of the narrative is driven by this, this carnal human sexuality and these power plays that we see among the people. And all throughout the book of Esther, not one time is God mentioned. So as I read Esther, I found myself asking this question, where is God? Where is God in Esther? Well, I actually want to spend a little bit of time this morning walking through the book and seeing if we can find him in some different places. The text opens in Esther chapter 1 with a drunken festival. Let's read verses 1 through 9. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains 
and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So we see here as the book opens, it opens with this 180-day, six-month-long festival where, to be honest, the king is just flaunting all that he has. And this 180-day-long festival is followed by seven days of anything goes. Each man as he's desired, the text says. Um, There will be no compulsion, and this was ordered by the king. And the picture we get is just this lavish, ridiculous, silly, rich, over-the-top, vain display of licentiousness and everything worldly. It would fit well in a Hollywood scene. And I look at this text and I think, it's hard to see God there. Well, as the feast wrapped up, we see the first part of the plot start to unfold in verse 10. It says, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman and Biztha and Harbona and Bigtha and Abagatha, Zether and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs, and at this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So what we see here is this drunken king has decided to parade his wife in front of all of his friends. So she's next door holding this other parallel feast with all of the women, and she kind of puts her foot down and refuses his request. Now, we have to read between the lines a little bit here, but I think it's pretty clear what is happening. When the king requested for her to show up in her royal crown, he meant only her royal crown. And she takes this moment to make a point. Queen Vashti stands up against this drunken and disgusting display of power, and in front of all the women she says, No way, I'm better than that, and it makes King Asuras mad. Hard to see. God there, isn't it? Like most things involving high-power figures, more's at stake than just a little spat at home. Vashti has made this public stance, and so the advisors to the king see this, and they see this as a threat to the power balance across the whole empire. In verse 16 we read, Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but against all the officials and all the peoples who are all in the provinces of King Asuras. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Asuras commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. In other words, she may be pretty, they say, but she has to be put in her place or all of the women are going to start acting this way. And so these chauvinistic men convince the king to issue this edict that she will never be allowed in his presence. And and this really sets the stage across, this is the first time I think that we see cancel culture showing up, 
Okay? He says, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna cancel you right now, Vashti. Okay? We're gonna just wipe you off the face of the of the royal playing field. And I look at that and I see the way that these men are acting and the way the king is acting, and it's hard to see God. Vashti has been pushed out, but she hasn't been replaced. And we see at the beginning of chapter 2, the resolve of the king seems to be weakening. So all his advisors get together and they come up with this plan. We're going to put together a state-sponsored beauty pageant, they say. Vashti may have been beautiful, but we all know that that's a fleeting thing. And you can always find someone who is better looking. So they gather up all of these beautiful virgins from across the, across the country and they pamper them for an entire year. And then look at what happens in chapter 2, verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shasgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again, unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So you think the TV show The Bachelor is vile? <laughs> Look at what's happening here. They, they literally gather up all these women from across the country and one night at a time, they parade them into the king, and they go in a virgin, and they leave a member of the king's harem, never to be called on again unless he remembers their name. And I'm going to guess he didn't remember very many names. It's hard to see God there. It turns out this was the fate of Esther, too. But something special, something different happened with Esther. The king was pleased. He remembered her name, and she was made queen to replace Vashti. But even in this, even in this, it's hard for me to cheer. And I can't imagine Esther was thrilled with this arrangement. I mean, the very design of everything they did was dehumanizing and objectifying towards women. So she settles into her place, and five years pass, and, and we really don't see much happening. And then all of a sudden, something disturbing emerges in Esther chapter 3. We read that after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agatite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So we see this disagreement, this power play arise between this Jew named Mordecai and this new powerful advisor named Haman. 
Mordecai isn't willing to bow down to him, it seems because of his Jewish beliefs. And Haman therefore decides, it's not enough for me just to kill Mordecai, I'm going to kill them all. And so he puts together a plan for state-sponsored genocide of the Jews. In verse 13 of chapter 3, we read, Letters were then sent by couriers to all of the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Where is God in Esther? It's pretty tough to see him so far. Have any of you ever had invisible ink? We uh, got a laugh this morning in early service. I was talking about Braxton, and he got some the other day, and he's had a grand old time writing secret messages all over the house. It's really cool. You can write preferably on a piece of paper, and then the light would expose the secret message, but mom wouldn't be able to tell were you to write on something else like a wall as long as she didn't have the special light to see the invisible ink. It's a really cool thing for kids to play with because messages can be left, um, and we have a lot of fun um, uncovering these messages written in invisible ink. You know, we just finished studying for seven weeks passages where God wrote clearly in black and white. He spoke through his son Jesus and he gave us these I am statements and he said, I am this and I am that and, and painted this very clear picture of how he was working. Jesus walked around on earth, it was God in the flesh and he was making statements about who he was and what he was doing. But here in Esther, God's working seems to be absent. And I look at the pages of Esther and I don't see much of anything. And I can imagine had we been in Esther's shoes, we would have struggled to see it then too. In this story, it's almost like God is writing with invisible ink. And it takes something special to be able to read the things that he's written. Let's keep asking ourselves the same question, but notice a few other small things. In Esther 2, 5-6, through 6, this is the introduction of Mordecai, who we already read about. It says, There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. A Jew, one of God's chosen people, who years ago had been taken from his home and landed in this country that was not his own in this particular time at this particular place. In verse 7 we read that he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So we see the introduction of this young girl, Esther, who the book is named after. She's an orphan. She's lost her father and mother. She's being raised by her cousin. And as chapter 2 unfolds, we see a lot of small things happening that are important to the plot. Like in verse 10, we see that Esther doesn't share the fact that she's a Jew with anyone in the courts. And this was per Mordecai's command, out of respect to him. In verse 11, we see that Mordecai keeps going by day after day and maintains contact with Esther, so they still have a relationship and are able to share messages back and forth. And then in chapter 2, verse 21, we read of this really kind of seemingly out-of-place interaction where Mordecai is sitting at the gates and he hears of this plot to assassinate the king. And so through this contact with Esther, he tells her, 
And Esther passes this along to the king, and their assassination attempt is thwarted. But as we've already read, the, the Jewishness of Mordecai was known. And when he refuses to bow down to, to Haman, he, he makes him mad, and his anger is projected onto all of the Jewish people. So we start to get glimpses of a really interesting situation brewing. We have this Jewish woman in a place of influence. And we have her father figure, her, her cousin over here, who is in the crosshairs of this very powerful man in this kingdom. And while I save some of the story for future lessons, suffice it to say this, Haman soon becomes impatient and he decides that he can't wait on the genocide of all of the Jews to get rid of Mordecai. So, so he starts constructing gallows one night in the middle of the night. And the next morning he plans to hang Mordecai on these gallows. And then we pick up the story in Esther 6 verse 1. On that night the king could not sleep. Maybe it was because of the construction next door on these massive gallows that were being built. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. Nothing like some historical uh, reading to put you to sleep, right? But, but look in verse 2, and it was found, written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So we find out that while these gallows are being built for Mordecai, the king is discovering the fact that Mordecai had saved him years prior. And as he starts asking questions, he discovers nothing's been done to honor him. And so we see this really tense situation where, king, where, uh, where Haman is, is on his way early in the morning into the, into the courts to ask permission to hang Mordecai. And, and King Ahasuerus is excited to see him so that he can deliver the news that, hey, you're the man that's going to go parade Mordecai around the city and honor him and say, this is what done to people who take care of the king. And, and this, this ironic situation happens, and, and it's really interesting. And I start seeing that maybe God is working in Esther. I mean, maybe I do see him. It's a pretty ironic situation to happen by chance. And then finally we see the culmination in so many small details in chapter 7, starting in verse 1. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What's your wish, Esther? It shall be granted to you. What's your request? Even half of my kingdom, and it shall be fulfilled. And then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So now I look back over the story and I start to see something different. We see this faithful cousin and this unsuspecting orphan and this secret well kept until just the right time. We see this opportunity for Mordecai to, 
to bank some favor and, a, and another opportunity for him to cash in on that at, at just the right time. And finally, we see the queen from God's people stepping in to save God's people. And as I look at this cumulative case, it's definitive. God is absolutely there. In fact, to all of these questions, it's a resounding yes. Not once is God named in the pages of Esther. Not once is he discussed. Not once is he even prayed to. But he is absolutely there. And his name is written everywhere in invisible ink. We just have to know how to look for it. And then this causes me to look back at all that we saw prior. The drunken festival that set the stage for Vashti. I think God was there too. And Vashti's boldness that seems to be punished, what what did it do? It paved the way for Esther. These advisors, these chauvinistic men who had nothing but their own interest in mind, started the ball rolling so that God could put the right person in the right place at the right time. This dehumanizing beauty pageant, this terrible display of, of what men can do to women, escalated this unknown orphan into a place of prominence. And this plot to massacre the Jews that first caused great confusion... It set the stage for God to display His deliverance in a powerful way that gave them the Feast of Purim and this message for us today. Yes, God is in all of these places. He's just writing with invisible ink. This is what we call the the providence of God. This is a non-technical definition. It's mine, so don't, um, don't chew it up too much. This is the non-miraculous but still supernatural working of God through mundane, everyday things. You know, we started our uh, worship service reading Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. But how? How does God turn a king's heart? Well, like we saw in Esther through events. And people, through sinful choices and righteous choices, through all of these everyday things, he's working like a, like a conductor to orchestrate his will and his purpose. I mean, he just turned the king of one of the most powerful kingdoms in the world, and he, and he never broke a sweat. When we read Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God is working all things together for good. God is working. You know, the stories we see in Scripture represent major important events. But since, it, it, it tell, it, since Scripture is this condensed collection of these events, it's easy to read Scripture in a way that, that leads us to assume that God working in these ways is normative. I think the beauty of Esther is to remind us that this is not so. God also works in quiet, mundane, sometimes hard to discern back roads. In fact, I think this is his normative stance towards creation and humanity. If you would uh, look at the image on the screen, the little blimps on the radar, those represent these powerful, miraculous moments that have happened in history. They're represented as a spike on the graph. And Scripture takes all of these little high points in it, and it puts them together in the story, and oftentimes it doesn't dip down and show us the flats. But normal life, where you and I are today, 
the experience of Esther, that was a life lived in the flats. And it's here, it's here in the flats that the providential working of God maintains His will and maintains His purpose throughout secular history. Then, today, and in the future. So how do we see the invisible ink? I think the story of Esther was written to answer this. Faithful reflection illuminates the present working of God and gives us future hope. It wasn't until you saw more of the story that you were able to see God in all of the story. But once you catch a glimpse of his work, once you notice it in the narrative, it totally changes the way you look at the story as you turn backwards. And Scripture does this for us. It points us to these big moments and these small moments where God can be seen working. But I believe that we also need to pause and we need to look for his providential care in our own lives. Because God is still working even in the flats, even when the ink seems invisible, his writing is everywhere. And we seldom slow down to take the time and notice the, the powerful ways he has worked under very normal circumstances to carry out his will. But once we see it clearly in a few places, we can look back and see it everywhere. Let me ask you this. How did you get here? Are there moments when you can identify when God was undeniably present? And as you think about those moments, how does that impact your view of the other moments when his working wasn't so clear? Or maybe we take a step back even further from our personal lives and we ask ourselves if we've seen him work this way in our lives, if we've seen him work this way in scripture, if we've seen him work this way throughout history, then what does it mean as we look at this broken world and we want to, we want to cry out with despair? It tells me if I, if I can know that he worked that way in the past, then I can be confident he's working that way now. And that gives me hope that he's going to work that way in the future. Even when on the surface it would seem that things are spiraling out of control, God is present and God is working. We're going to see over the course of the next few weeks how he uses various people in important ways to accomplish this. And we're also going to uncover through the story of Esther the ultimate purpose and aim of all of his work, justice for and preservation of his people. You know, as we wrap up, I think we have all had moments when we found ourselves to be a little too much like King Ahasuerus, living in sin and mocking everything good that God stands for. But part of God's powerful work throughout the course of history was bringing Jesus Christ into the world so that we could be forgiven and so that we could change. In fact, this very story shows us how God used his providential care to preserve his people and give us Jesus. You know, we serve a powerful and present God who's using his providential powers even today to bring about salvation for his people. And you have the option to be one of them. By believing in Jesus and being baptized into his name, you can have eternal life. And if you haven't done this, I can't help but wonder. Perhaps the providential care of God has led you to this place at this time just for that reason. And I hope you won't turn your back on it. 
Perhaps you're not ready for that, but you're curious. We would love to study with you. Or perhaps you are a believer who's struggling with sin, and today is God's way of helping you redirect. I hope that you won't ignore it. I hope you will give us a chance to partner with you and surround you and pray with you and walk with you and help you get better. The invitation is open. Whatever your need is, come forward as we stand and as we sing.